Hello and welcome back. So here we are. This is Abnormal Psychology. This is part three of Contemporary Perspectives um, in the Look of Abnormality. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, again, chapter three, and this is our third part. Um, where we left off was we were talking about um, the psychological approaches to abnormality uh, based on Freud and then, of course, more modern thought based on that approach. We talked about behavioral approaches to abnormality. Um, really kind of started out with, if we wanted to go way, way back, we could talk about um, Edward Thorndike or Pavlov, but more modern, we could talk about John Watson or B.F. Skinner. And then what those behavioral techniques have led into and some of the treatments that have come out of it. Now we're going to talk about biological approaches. What we know is that biological science has made great progress in the understanding of the physical bases for behavior. In fact, research into anatomy and neurochemistry of the brain provides insight into their roles in emotions, emotional disorders, and even avenues for treatment. But here's the tricky part. Although behavior is not possible without biology, it's less clear whether a particular biological state will result in any specific behavior. There is no one-to-one -one correlation. We can't automatically say that, yes, you know, this is, it's biology that caused this disorder. We might have some disorders that have biological causes, but again, not all cases um, can be looked at that way. And that's, that's true of all these. Again, we could look at some psychological reasons for abnormality and um, maybe in some cases it's psychological, in some cases it's learned, and in other cases it's biological. Now when we do look at this biological approach, we can look at some major concepts that fall into here. One is heredity. Again, what role does chromosomes and genes play in the development of abnormality? We could talk about genotype and phenotype. Genotype is the genetic makeup that a person carries. So every possible genetic outcome that a person carries, both those dominant traits and the recessive traits that a person carries in their makeup, um, is in one's genotype. Phenotype is the physical expression of genetic material. So again, that's only the dominant genes that get expressed as a result of being present in an organism or person, or the recessive gene if there's no dominant gene that's present. We can take a look at twin and adoption studies and even do estimates of genetic influences based on some of these uh, characteristics. And then finally, we're going to take a look at the brain and nervous system, at cortical functioning and neurotransmission and neurotransmitters. So first off, let's talk about, again, research methods to study heredity. So one of the things that we know is that mental disorders are not directly inherited, um, not in any direct manner from parents. But evidence shows that heredity does play an important role in psychopathology. So again, parents um, in their chromosomes that they pass on to their offspring, they pass on maybe a potential for abnormality or psychopathology, but it doesn't mean that the person is going to for sure show those signs or not. Um, Again, just because someone has alcoholism that runs in their family and their parent may even be an active alcoholic doesn't mean that the offspring or the children from that parent are going to be alcoholics, but they may have it in their background. So something to kind of keep in mind. And it could be that the next generation, the generation that wasn't raised um, in that kind of alcohol abuse environment, 
you know, that was raised in more of a teetotaler environment, maybe they are the ones that develop an alcohol problem. Again, it seems to have skipped a generation. It really didn't. It was there all along, but the circumstances weren't right for it to show itself. One of the things that we know is by collecting information from studies about family members who have mental disorders, we can start to take a look at the distribution um, that's occurring within a family. And that can provide information about genetic involvement. So we can look at linkage studies, twin studies, and adoption studies. There's three kind of ways we can do it. So the next chart um, that you see up here, and for those of you at home, I'm going to try to describe this as best as you can. What we see is kind of a family tree, and, and it indicates uh, Alzheimer's disease that runs within a family. So this is a, a sample family, a case study, if you will. What we have is we have circles, we have squares. Um, if they have lines through them, then they're deceased. Um, and this goes back one, two, three, four, five generations. So again, think about a generation right now and then going back four generations from there. And if we take a look at this chart, what we see is we see the circle indicates a female, the square indicates a male. So here's a, a couple, a female and a male, back four or five generations, if you will. And the mother, the woman, has Alzheimer's disease displayed. Um, and the husband, or father in this case, did not display Alzheimer's disease. So it was in the mom's maybe makeup, but it wasn't in the father's makeup. Um, if we take a look at the first generation from those, we can look at the six offspring that came out of the union of these two individuals. And what's really interesting is five of the six children ended up developing schizophrenia, at least in this family structure. Um, and there are three males and three females. It's only one of the females that didn't develop um, Alzheimer's disease. Looking at the next generation of offspring from those unions, right? So again, you have people come in and they have kids or they don't have kids. What we can take a look at is the next level actually has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 offspring. And of those 15 offspring, 10 displayed symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, but the other did not. So in the first one, we had six offspring, five of the six displayed symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. The next generation, um, you know, from there, we have 15 offspring, but 10 of the 15 displayed Alzheimer's disease, right? So here it seems to be pretty prevalent even now. When we go to the next generation of offspring, right, we're now up to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So there's 18 offspring here. And of these 18 offspring, only three have shown signs of schizophrenia. So one of the things that we might determine is maybe it's being weeded out genetically as this family kind of progresses through the generations. Or maybe it's just that these most recent generations, the individuals are still alive and aren't old enough to display the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So again, we can take a look at like the family pedigree, if you will, and how it progresses. We can take a look at twin studies. And there are two different kinds of twins, so we're going to define that right off the bat. We have identical twins. Identical twins are what we call monozygotic. Monozygotic twins are twins that result from one egg, one sperm joining together, right? 
and in the division process after conception, two separate people were formed. They are genetically identical. So then we can take a look and say, well, if one twin has a mental illness, does the other twin have it? And of course, the higher likelihood that the other twin will have it, the higher genetic contribution that we assume uh, is causing that. We can look at fraternal twins, what we call dizygotic twins. Dizygotic twins, two separate sperm, two separate egg were fertilized. So two separate, uh, again, if you will, uh, conceptions occurred. They developed separately, uh, but were born around the same time. And then again, they are as genetically alike as any sibling pair. So they don't have the same genetics, but you know, any siblings born at opposite times. And when we take a look at that, then we can see what is the chances or you know, what are the potential for those twins if one twin has some kind of uh, disorder that the other one might have it. Let's go back to those identical twins so I can just give you an example. In schizophrenia, one of the, the things that we, that we know is that if one identical twin has schizophrenia, there's about, in some research shows, as high as 50% chance that the second twin, identical twin, could develop schizophrenia. Now what's unique is some of the newer research is saying that's only true if they share the same embryonic sac prenatally. If they grow up and are raised, you know, or kind of develop in separate embryonic sacs, then it drops down to about 20% instead of up near 50%. And what's really interesting about 20%, 20% is the chance that an offspring will develop schizophrenia if one of their parents has it. So obviously, again, there seems to be some kind of impact in prenatal development and maybe even prenatal environment that affects this. It's assumed that the differences in degree of behavioral similarities between identical and fraternal twins will be largely due to greater genetic similarity in the identical twins, um, and given the fact that they are in the, roughly the same equal environment. So again, that, that higher likelihood in identical twins seems to be tied to genetics. We can look at adoption studies. Another method for assessing genetic influence, compare children who've been removed from their biological parents at or shortly after birth, and then adopted and raised by foster parents. If the adoptee is more like their adopting parents than their biological parents, then we can infer that environmental influences dominate this picture. If the adoptee is more like the biological parents than the adoptive parents, then we can infer that genetic influences seem to be the result. So again, another way we can take a look at that. We can also look at estimates of genetic influences. And for most behavioral traits, genes may account for about half of the variability between people, while environmental factors account for the other half. So really when we get down to it, which is more important, nature versus nurture, they're about equal. In some cases, maybe genetics a little stronger. In some cases, maybe environments a little stronger. Um, remember we talked about identical twins and we said as high as 50% if one twin has it and the other twin may develop it, but that also means there's a 50% chance that they won't develop it. So that 50% chance really seems to be tied to genetics, but the other part of the picture, again, is environment. Now we can do calculations of heritability. Um, but they don't exactly tell us to what extent genetics or environment causes a trait. Right, nor do they uh, tell us whether an individual will develop a trait. Um, they just kind of give us hints as to you know, what might be happening here. 
We can take a look at the human brain, and you know I'm going to go over this kind of quickly. Hopefully, um, you remember from your Psych 101 days the human brain. So here's a picture of a human brain, some of the key areas of the human brain. In this case, it's looking at the cerebral cortex, so the higher level functioning that occurs in the cerebral cortex. We've got the frontal lobe, right? We've got, again, the motor cortex or the somatosensory cortex, if you will, the parietal lobe, occipital lobe. Uh, visual cortex, um, temporal lobe, all identified here in these different areas. Occipital lobe and visual cortex is a part within it, so occipital lobe being in the back of the head, and, and again, that, that's what seems to control vision. Um, we can talk about Wernicke's area, the ability to understand speech, or maybe Broca's area, the ability to respond to speech. Um, so again, we can kind of see maybe there's a breakdown, maybe there's something in the human brain, maybe a lesion or a tumor that's causing abnormality. Um, and if so, then of course treatment would follow, we would have to try to get rid of that. Um, or maybe it's just something else, um, not structurally, but maybe uh, chemically or electrochemically, if you will, in the communication network. So it's obvious that mental disorders could be affected by genes, of course. Um, through which proteins they direct, could even do that. Um, it could influence the development and functioning of every aspect of physiology and even chemistry within the organism, even within the brain itself. So we can divide the brain up into some different divisions. Now, I, get, I know I'm going awfully fast, but we've got um, a little bit of material and I, I wanted to try to get through it as fast as possible, so I apologize if I seem to be on, you know, <laughs> seem to be pretty quick in my language today. I'll try to slow down a bit. When we take a look at the human brain, we take a look at the divisions, we can see, we can break the brain into a couple ways. One way we can talk about old brain, new brain, old brain being those primitive areas of the brain, what we call as the subcortical areas of the brain, you know, areas that contain, um, again, uh, structures that respond to heartbeat, respiration, blood pressure, balance, things like that. More like the animal brain, that's the primitive brain. Then we can talk about the more modern brain, and that's really the cerebral cortex, the thinking cap itself. We also can divide the brain into hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain. Um, hindbrain being, from an evolutionary standpoint, again, the oldest parts of the brain, uh, controlling those basic functions, those physiological functions. We can talk about the midbrain. That, that tends to focus more on the control of sleep and waking and many of the basic reflexes. And then we can talk about the forebrain, and the forebrain also including that cerebral cortex. These structures involved in processing sensory information, the seeing, the hearing, the other senses, fine motor control, speech and language, learning, higher functions. So again, if we're having problems in those higher functioning areas, maybe it's in the forebrain or cerebral cortex, if it's more along the heartbeat, respiration, maybe you have an anxiety disorder, your fight or flight system kicks in too quickly, and you start to get panicky, maybe that's a hindbrain issue. So again, the area of the brain could help direct that. We also could talk about neurotransmission. It's another part of the brain. It's another part of physiology. And neurotransmission has to do with that idea of neurons. So again, neurons are the basic building blocks of the nervous system. Neurons can be uh, broken into, again, their pieces, parts, if you will. So imagine that this is a neuron. We've got dendrites. Dendrites pick up the message from the previous neuron. They're little fibers that reach out and pick up or receive the message. 
message is then spread through the neurons, you know, uh, cell body. It really contains, you know, nourishes the cell, contains the, the uh, you know, genetic information that tells the cell what to do. The information then passes down the axon. It's carried away from the cell body by the axon, away axon. It's the part of the neuron that carries neuroimpulses to other cells. And at the very end, we might have these terminal buttons. Um, that's where neurotransmitters are stored. Neurotransmitters are the chemical messengers that carry the message from one neuron to the next. And they carry it across what's called the synapse. The synapse are the joining together of two neurons. They don't touch. Um, I always say in Psych 101, there's like spirit fingers. They don't touch. They get close, but they don't really touch each other. And it's that synaptic gap that really the neurotransmitters carry the message across, kind of like a ferry carrying a boat across, or a, a car across a, a river or a lake or, or some kind of body of water. So again, the synapse being that teeny gap separating the neurons across which neurotransmitters provide the chemical communication. So if we take a look at these biological approaches and now we look at treatment, if we think that biology caused the abnormality, then the treatment must follow. It must also be derived from this biological perspective. Again, underlying biological causes, treatment has to focus on that. And the three kinds of therapies that we've looked at throughout, again, these more modern perspectives, one is convulsive therapy um, for a biological approach. The second one is psychosurgery. And the third one is psychopharmacology. So let's talk about these one at a time. Convulsive therapies really started, if we want to go back to the early 1900s, um, when we, we started to make some observations about mentally disturbed individuals. What we noticed in the early 1900s was that uh, mentally disturbed people showed improvement in their symptoms after they recovered from a convulsion. So if they had a, a seizure or convulsion, they seemed to, ha to have lower symptoms being displayed after that. So as a result, um, some of the early history, we decided that we would kind of use that and we would induce a seizure or a convulsion in a patient with mental illness. And then our belief was that that would in some way chase away right, their, their symptoms of mental illness. Uh, what we know today is that's not necessarily the case. In recent decades, and, and that really started out with um, things like um, insulin shock therapy, where we would actually induce people into an insulin coma and then hopefully try to pull them back out again before they died. So again, very, it could be very dangerous condition to try to do. Um, that kind of morphed into some more controlled kinds of experiments on electroconvulsive shock therapy. Initially, we would provide a mild shock. A person would go into a seizure. They might even fling their arms around and, and injure themselves. The more modern technique for electroconvulsive shock therapy is um, using muscle relaxers to relax the person so that when they have a seizure, um, they don't harm themselves. So electroconvulsive sh shock therapy, we still use it today. Some think, or think it's barbaric. Um, but um, one of the things that we know is electroconvulsive shock therapy does seem to work with serious mood disorders. Now, that's serious cases of depression, usually suicidal behavior, self-injurious behavior. And ECT seems to be more effective in the short term than antidepressant medication 
whenever the, de the, the condition is severe dep depression. So I I'm going to go back to this idea. Well, maybe, you know, I have this seizure. So electroconvulsive shock therapy, I in induce a seizure in a person. I pass electrical current through the brain for a brief period of time, maybe a quarter of a second, a second at most. It causes a seizure about anywhere between, you know, uh, 25 to maybe a minute uh, uh, seizure long, uh, seizing of the body. And then the person comes out of it and it seems like the symptoms are less, but I wonder if maybe part of it is they've forgotten in some ways. We know there's some mild uh, memory effects that can sometimes happen from ECT. So maybe they've forgotten what they were um, upset over, in this case depression. So maybe they forgot why they were so depressed. Again, it's a short-term treatment but it's more immediate than waiting the couple weeks for medication to kick in. Uh, antidepressant medication, for example, may take as many as anywhere between you know, two to three weeks up to possibly 12 weeks for it to reach its full effect. And again, you might not want to wait 12 weeks if you have someone that's suicidal or even two weeks for someone that's suicidal. You need treatment more, uh, more effectively and quicker. And so that's why we still use ECT even today. Um, we can talk about uh, magnetic seizure therapy. It's another kind of convulsive therapy, if you will. It involves stimulation of brain regions by magnetic fields at sufficient strength to result in convulsions. Um, but what's really kind of cool is we're trying to get away from that. Again, some people think it's barbaric, and I'm not going to argue one way or another. I have seen beneficial effects from ECT in a, an inmate that I worked with in the prison who had severe suicidal ideation. So I'm not going to say it doesn't work. Now, now, we used to use it for schizophrenia and stuff like that. It doesn't work for those things, but for severe depression. But the new kid on the block, right, is maybe we get away from inducing an actual convulsion. So we've got what's called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. And that's uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation is abbreviated as TMS. And what happens in this approach, we send a magnetic pulse. Um, repeatedly at a sub-seizure level of intensity to kind of break down um, this depressive symptomology. And what we see is that it's promising. It seems to reduce depression in people when we use it, but it doesn't tend to be as effective as ECT. So again, it's, it's better than ECT. It doesn't induce a full seizure at sub-seizure levels, but maybe it doesn't have the robustness of ECT. We can also look at vagus nerve stimulation. This is the, another new kid on the block, right? It's been approved by the FDA for use with treatment-resistant depression. And what's really happening is we implant electrodes into specific brain areas. And then, of course, it stimulates these areas and that's hopefully uh, reducing depression. And again, this is only used for treatment-resistant depression because you know, we're not gonna, this is some, this is brain surgery essentially. I mean, you're putting these, um, you know, electrodes into specific brain areas. We're not gonna do that unless, um, again, it's severe cases when nothing else seems to work. It's a newer development, again, seems promising, but as of yet, we still can't match ECT for the size of the effector speed. So ECT still seems to have some staying power. 
Now, you'll see a link in this PowerPoint, and that link is to uh, some short films. Um, there were some earlier on the Human Genome Project. This one, if you click on this link, and you, if you search on YouTube, you might even find it. Um, it's early electroconvulsive therapy, so just a little 10-minute video on what we used to do, some video of actually people experiencing seizures after using these early electroconvulsive approaches. Psycho or psychosurgery, that's the next kind of treatment approach we can talk about. And psychosurgery, again, is, is, I'm going to say, limited to severe, severe cases when, um, when other means of treatment don't seem to work. Um, in 1935, a frontal lobotomy was a procedure developed, and what we did in that is we separated the frontal lobes from the deeper parts of the brain, and we would use that as treatment for violent, agitated, or depressed, or even dangerous people. What's really odd is that in only about one-third of the cases did this show improvement, but Antonio Montz, who was awarded the Nobel Prize uh, for developing this procedure, he was known for that, 1949, he won the Nobel Prize, but again, it only really uh, helped one-third of the patients he worked with. So the other ones, you know, were causing some damage, some brain damage that's not repairable, and yet it didn't take away the violent, agitated behaviors. Um, psychosurgery now still remains experimental practice. It's not part of the standard biological treatment. I would say, the, uh, again, the only time it's used is when nothing else works or if we can identify a brain structure, some kind of physical abnormality that we believe the psychosurgery could correct. And here's another video. This one's to transorbital lobotomy. Um, so you can take a look at that, and oh, it's right there on the tip of my tongue, I can't think. Dr. Freeman, I want to say, um, is again uh, known for his uh, approaches. Um, and it pretty, I'm just going to give you a fair warning, it's, it's a little graphic. Um, uh, in transorbital lobotomy, they actually take an ice pick and they go up um, behind the eye to cause damage in that area. And so, again, um, not, I'm not going to say that it was the most humane treatment. It's something to kind of think about. So, again, I'll let you look into that, read of that in your book. If you want to know more about it, we can talk about it later. Probably the, the most um, effective approach that we use today is what's called psychopharmacology. And that is the current focus of biological treatments. And it's the use of drugs which then impact that neurotransmission in the brain that we were talking about. So, it affects the release of neurotransmitters into that synaptic gap. It affects the communication between neurons, right? Or it maybe even halts the communication between neurons or stops the release of neurotransmitters. What we know is that in 2002, over 11% of American adults received some kind of psychotropic medication. And I want to say that I read somewhere, and I apologize. Again, I probably shouldn't share this in the audio recording because I don't have my source. I do believe that I've seen some stats as high as maybe 20%, excuse me, maybe 20% of those today um, in the United States may be on some kind of psychotropic medication or at least were at one point. So again, um, you know, those numbers are increasing from 2002. I guarantee you we're way above 11% now. Um, the drug revolution really started in the 1950s and it's resulted in symptom relief, but None of the medications, even the ones we use today, 
uh, correct or resolve the bio biological condition that's presumed to underlie the symptoms. So what am I saying by that? It means that, again, I can give you a med to treat the symptoms of schizophrenia or give you a med to treat the symptoms of dementia or the symptoms of depression or anxiety, but that doesn't mean it's correcting the problem underneath. I'm merely treating the symptoms. And in some cases, maybe that's good enough. So um, the, the best thing I can equate it to is, imagine that you're someone with high blood pressure. Okay, so you have a condition of high blood pressure, you take a medication for high blood pressure, and that medication reduces your blood pressure to normal, to normal means. The minute that you stop taking that med, whatever caused the high blood pressure is going to have you res resume to the high blood pressure kind of setting. Um, so as long as you take the med as a maintenance, then it goes away. And it sounds awesome, and you go, well, why wouldn't someone take? For example, a medication for schizophrenia. Why wouldn't you just take that? Well, well, here's the problem with that. It's that these medications cause side effects. All medications cause side effects. Um, for example, I'm on a, a blood pressure medication. It, it gets my blood pressure into normal rates. But one of the side effects of that medication is a, a chronic cough that sometimes comes up. A dry cough I can't seem to, to get rid of. So the question that I, my doctor asked me once is, am I willing to tolerate? the side effect for the benefit. And in my case, you know, I can, I can put up with coughing here and there, uh, but maybe for somebody else, maybe not. Some of the side effects, for example, of antidepressant medication are weight gain, sexual dysfunction. Um, so yeah, I'm happy, but I'm um, also heavier and then, you know, and I can't perform. And so I might not, that, that might not make me happy, right? Or maybe schizophrenia, one of the side effects of some of our you know, hardcore psychotropics are um, dry mouth. Dry mouth that even drinking water doesn't take away. So again, you know, there are consequences to that. So, and we're still not fixing the problem, just treating the symptoms. Before 1900, uh, drugs such as alcohol, heroin, cocaine, various other sedatives and hypnotics, um, and stimulant substances were used to treat mental disorders back in the day of Sigmund Freud. Cocaine was the miracle drug. It was the Prozac of the time. It was you know, prescribed to patients to try to help them out. Um, and, and again, they didn't fully understand all the addictive qualities as they started to. Um, then, it, of course, it fell out of favor. By 1950, um, benzodrine, an amphetamine, had been used for hyperactivity and lithium salts have been used to treat mania, and we still use amphetamines to treat hyperactivity, and we still use uh, lithium even today um, as a mood stabilizer. So again, it's interesting. Antipsychotic and antidepressant drugs were uh, developed in the 1950s when reductions in psychological symptoms were noted after the use of antihistamines and TB meds, tuberculosis meds, respectively. So again, you go, what? Really? I mean, you know, these meds triggered like a different response and we go, hey, I bet there's some other meds we can take a look at. So the drug revolution really started in 1950 and I think that's where we've spent most of our time since. Again, that revolution of antipsychotic and antidepressant medications led to the development of biological theories of the disorders they treat. So we came up with like, for example, the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia that maybe this disorder is caused by excessive dopamine in the brain. Um, when we go and treat Parkinson's patients, uh, 
in Parkinson's patients, the area of the brain that's supposed to produce dopamine, those cells in the brain die off and stop producing dopamine. Um, we have this substance called L-DOPA, like fake dopamine, and we've given that to Parkinson's patients to treat their condition. What we see is if they get too much of that, too much dopamine, they actually start to hallucinate and show signs of uh, psychosis. So again, we go, wow, maybe it's connected to dopamine. Um, we can look at, you know, as I stumble through some of these terms, I apologize for that, right? Catalectamine hypothesis of depression, and it su suggests that maybe norepinephrine in the brain, right, is causing mood disorders. So maybe there's this depletion of norepinephrine in the brain, and that results in these mood disorders. So that's some of the stuff that we can sometimes you know, take a look at. Again, these are guesses, and here's the smoking gun. Here's the difficulty. You ready? There's no biological theory that explains every single case. Um, even the dopamine hypothesis, not all schizophrenics respond to dopamine. Some potential complications of psychopharmacology, and there are some considerable concerns about medication side effects, uh, need to be taken a look at. There's some potentially fatal uh, blood diseases associated with some of the newer antipsychotic medications, so we have to be careful of that. What? Um, we have to take a look at tardive, tardive dyskinesia. Tardive dyskinesia is an occasional long-term side effect um, of treatment of schizophrenia. Involves rhythmic stereotype movements and lip smacking. And here's the harsh part of that. Once tardive dyskinesia starts, sometimes even when you discontinue the med, it remains. It's more of a chronic condition. Um, and frequently what ends up happening is you end up giving a person a medication for, uh, for example, a psychotropic medication, but then you have to give additional medications that are prescribed to help patients control the side effects of the original medication. And, of course, this happens too. Once the medication stops, then relapse is a real potential that can happen. And that's one of the things we see in schizophrenia. So I can give you a medication to take away the psychosis, but once you stop taking the medication, the psychosis can return. So again, we have to pay attention to some of those things. And, and we realize it's not a, a cure, but merely a treatment of symptoms. Let's talk about this final approach. We've got about six slides left and I, a few minutes left that I want to try to wrap this up. So the humanistic existential approaches. Now, um, I, I have to give you a misnomer right off the bat. These are actually two different approaches that are kind of joined together. Most textbooks do it. The humanistic approach is a more positive approach. The existential approach, a more uh, solemn approach, if you will. But both of these approaches explain psychological symptoms as the existential anxiety produced by blockage of growth and the results of inauthentic subjective experiences. So basically at the, at the core, people are seen as valued human beings and they struggle with problems of their existence. And people are free to make their own choices, so maybe they choose to go down the wrong path. The humanistic perspective is a more positive view, if you will, um, 
they, like Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, they argue that people are basically good. They're basically motivated towards self-fulfillment, towards constructive personal growth. You know, why does a student cheat? It's not because they want to get caught or necessarily because they want to do something nasty or they want to sneak past, but they want to get the best grade possible. It's just they're headed down the wrong path. They're deciding to cheat on a test instead of working hard the opposite way and, and earning it in a more um, legitimate format, if you will. But there are other various um, writers, more on the existential side, who disagree with regard to the question of whether people are basically good, bad, or, or, or indifferent. Um, the, the existential approach really came out of Europe um, right around World War II. Many of the great scholars and philosophers and uh, thinkers at the time, they were seen as being enemies of the state and a danger uh, to the German uh, war machine. And so they were oftentimes placed in concentration camps. And it's through their experiences in, in these horrible conditions and then seeing people still strive to find meaning in their life. There's death all around you, and yet people still try to find meaning in their life. So again, that maybe suffering is part of living. Maybe that's part of this whole purpose. So that's more of an existential kind of approach, and, and those, of course, have a little bit darker kind of sense of reality. Um, so that's where some of those fights are occurring. Today, what are we trying to do? We try to use a more integrated model, a more uh, kind of joined together model. Right now, we don't have one unified model that seems to uh, lead us through this uh, you know, idea of abnormality or this expl exploration of this topic matter. The trend is that maybe eventually we may combine um, these different paradigms, these different views to, to really study psychopathology in a more unified way. But um, I think because of the variability of human experience, um, that's, I, I just don't know if that's possible. Um, we do see an increased reliance on outcome assessment. And that's, again, resulted in efforts to empirically identify effective treatments and to only use those treatments that we know are effective for the problems. Now, the next couple of charts that we take a look at um, really take a look at the problem, some of the well-established treatments, and then some treatments that may have some benefit but maybe need some more exploration. Now this chart is from 1998, so it's an older chart. Some of these things have, have probably moved from the uh, possible helpfulness over to the well-established treatment, but again, just for sake of uh, zipping through this, I'm gonna go at a fairly good pace. So take a look at anxiety disorders. Um, some of the well-established treatments are cognitive behavioral therapy for panic disorder, cognitive behavioral therapy for generalized anxiety disorder, exposure treatment for agoraphobia, exposure and uh, response prevention for obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and I'm going to let you know my background is in cognitive behavioral approaches. Um, the idea that change thinking and behavior will follow or likewise change behavior and thinking will follow. So I'll give you the best example I can. Let's say that you're hanging out at the house. Your friend calls you up to go to the gym and you go, I don't want to go to the gym. And you're kind of moping around like, I don't really want to go to the gym today. But you know, your friend is you know, you know, kind of persistent and eventually drags you to the gym. And then after working out, you go, you know what? I feel really good. Thanks for letting me go. I'm glad that you made me do it. 
So initially they didn't want to, Lenezeroids, their cognitive views of it were negative, but doing the behavior resulted in a change in thinking. Um, another example is uh, I worked with a, a student once who, who said, you know, I've got no friends, like nobody wants to hang with me, I'm depressed, and, and so I mope around and everyone, you know, everyone thinks I'm Eeyore, I don't really, I don't really get along with me. Uh, you know, and I said, well, of course people don't want to get along with you. You're doom and gloom boy. You know, every time you come around, people look at you and they go, oh, here he comes again. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to fake it. I want you to kind of pretend, you know, pretend that you're more social. I want you to make one new friend every day. Say hi to someone new that you didn't talk to before. And then, you know, kind of send him out on his own. He actually went to another school. He had transferred after completing his degree here at Hack. And what's really interesting is he contacted me a few months after, you know, going to his new school, after transferring, and one of the things he said was, you know what, I, I now have friends. He decided he wasn't going to be doom and gloom boy. He was going to have an opportunity to change his life. And so, again, cognitive behavioral approaches are well established in many of these conditions. Some other possible treatments for anxiety, things like applied relaxation, right, again, um, Eye movement desensitization and reprogramming for PTSD. It's kind of a, um, an interesting uh, process. We don't fully know how it works. Uh, the idea that you follow an object back and th forth through your visual field and while you're thinking about some kind of trauma or traumatic event and then it seems to take the emotion away from it. Um, so again, that's one of the things, systematic desensitization, breaking down again, how sensitive you are to certain things. So that could be fear of flying, could be social anxiety disorder or something like that. Uh, and response prevention, I just want to share this. Response prevention means that if someone has a response, like maybe they have OCD and they have to pick things up, and response prevention means that you stop them from doing that behavior. So you stop them from picking up whatever object it might be that they want to, and then you get them to process what it you know, how to deal with the anxiety that's triggered by the fact that they're not following through with their, with their compulsive behavior. Some other disorders, depression, some well-established treatments, behavior therapy for depression, cognitive therapy for depression, interpersonal therapy. Now we could use some brief dynamic therapy that seems to have some potential, right? Self-control therapy, again, has some potential but needs to be studied more. We could take a look at health problems, behavior therapy, even for headaches, cognitive behavioral therapy for bulimia, for rheumatic pain, you know, for relapse prevention for smoking sensation. So we can use all that, right? Again, we can look at some of the other approaches. Um, we can look at childhood disorders, behavior modification for enuresis, or parent training for children with oppositional uh, disorder. Right? So we can kind of take a look at, at those kinds of issues. And maybe if it, behavior modification for enuresis is, is, you know, works, maybe we can apply behavior modification for encopresis. Enuresis is urination in inappropriate places. Encopresis is uh, defecation in inappropriate places. And we can even look at marital problems. Right? So does a person need behavioral marital therapy? Again, getting them to practice the behaviors that are more supportive of the marriage situation versus those that seem to undermine the behavior or the, the relationship. 
and maybe even some insight-oriented marital therapy or even emotion-focused couples therapy. So again, these are just some, some ideas, some, some well-established and, and probably helpful psychotherapies for selected disorders. So I just kind of wanted to talk about that. So then finally, if we're going to kind of wrap it up, right, we can talk about, ooh, this last category of other problems. Now, other problems are problems that, again, um, we have some possible treatments for, not well-established treatments, so these need to be explored a little further. Behavioral therapy for cocaine abuse, cognitive therapy for opiate dependence, Masters and Johnson sex therapy for female orgasmic disorder, behavior modification for sex offenders, dialectic behavioral therapy for borderline personality disorders, even social skills training for social adjustment of schizophrenic patients. So again, it's not going to take away maybe the psychosis, but can they uh, conform their behavior to the social norms a little bit better so that uh, maybe they don't feel like they're um, maybe ostracized from society? Uh, and you know, can we develop some skills to help them cope better? So these are just some examples. Again, these are all based on those ideas. So the contemporary views, um, again, psychological in perspective, behavioral in perspective, biological in perspective, or the humanistic existential approach. So hopefully this was helpful. This is the end. Uh, there is no part four, so uh, the end of contemporary frameworks, and I appreciate you for listening. Thank you. Have a great day.